Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of Pole Position on History Hack. Alina, who have you found for us today? Today, we will be speaking with William Fletcher, who is a military historian specialising in the Napoleonic Wars. He's currently a teaching fellow at King's College London, and he's also an experienced tour guide delivering battlefield tours. After hearing my call for more Polish history, he's kindly come to talk to us today about Poland in the Napoleonic period, which both Alex and I are really keen to find out so much more about it. So welcome, William. Thank you very much. Pleased to be here. Thanks for having me on. Whereabouts are you and how is lockdown? <laughs> um, I'm stuck in the Cotswold, so there, there's worse places to be. Um, but yeah, stuck at home, sort of like everyone else, I think, just occasionally going out for walks and, um, yeah, just trying to get on with work as much as I can. Um, reordering my books. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's about it, really. Oh, it just God willing, it is all over soon. Yeah, I know. Um, it's so weird being sort of stuck in without sort of the normal routine of things going on. Yeah, I think as well, I was saying earlier to another one of our guests, I think there's going to be a lot of people who are going to crash when it comes to having to get up and go back to life. I think uh, people, <laughs> yeah, are, yeah. some people it's the being locked down, but other people I think that the big punch in the face is going to be the, okay, up you get, time to get going again. Yeah, exactly, yeah. No, it's That's going to be me. <laughs> So let's get to um, some history then. Um, this is all spawned yes. from a question that came in while we were talking to Sean Bean, isn't it, um, about Poland's involvement yes. um, in the Napoleonic period. So get us started, Alina. So it was Paul Zach who couldn't answer a question, funnily enough, my dad gave. Um, so we've pulled in William to do this. But we're going to start from the beginning. So what state was Poland in in the 1790s? Um, yes, well, interesting and big question to start with, really, because um, Poland in the 1790s, um, obviously in a very difficult situation, um, much like a, a lot of the rest of its history, it was stuck sort of between Russia, Prussia and Austria, and it's made it very difficult for them to sort of maintain their own independence. And there had been a Commonwealth of Poland and Lithuania since 1569, um, but Stanislav II had sort of become um, heavily under the influence of Catherine the Great of Russia. And so this had led to two big partitions of Poland in 1772 and 1792, which basically meant that Poland lost um, a lot of its uh, territory um, to other major European powers. Um, And then this led to a major uprising in 1794 um, by the Polish. Um, And funnily enough, 
in December, I was actually in Poland, um, in Rockslav, and there's a huge um, panorama painting there. Uh, people may be familiar with the big Waterloo panorama, where it's a sort of 360-degree uh, painting. And there's a similar thing in uh, Poland depicting this 1794 uh, uprising against the Russians and the Austrians and their sort of influence on Poland. And this was a sort of major uh, bid for independence by the Polish. Um, but unfortunately, this was put down and led to a third major partition, um, which lost more of their country. And so um, with the, the French Revolution sort of added another dimension to this whole uh, situation, because not only was there Austria, Prussia and Russia, but now France sort of came into the mix. And so Poland sort of um, not really in keeping with the French Revolution ideas, and they're still very much sort of running along the old lines of the nobility, but they were trying to find a way of becoming um, independent again. And so France and then Napoleon, when he eventually came to power, uh, would sort of potentially offer a way of Poland becoming that independent country again. Um, they're particularly um, opposed to Prussia, Prussian influence and Prussian conscription of their people into the Prussian army. Um, and so when Napoleon came on the scene, that was really uh, what they were thinking, that maybe he could help in terms of them becoming an independent country again. So what was the importance of Napoleon's campaign in Prussia and in Poland before 1806 to 1807? Yeah, so the, the campaign um, in you know Eastern Prussia and Poland um, in 1806-7 was important with this idea of potentially getting independence for Poland um, from the Polish perspective. Um, but for Napoleon, um, he really had a sort of two-pronged um, idea. Firstly, to instigate um, a major rising in Poland. And so he sent uh, General Dobrovsky, who was one of his generals serving in the French army, who was Polish, and then sent him to Poland to try and stir up um, a sort of rebellion in uh, Poland in 1806 with various um, other Polish that had been serving in the French army. And so that was the first thing. And then secondly, Napoleon was going to um, invade Poland because um, after he defeated the Prussians at Jena and Auschwitz in 1806, um, the Prussians were still very much an active military country. And he wanted to sort of push into Prussia and Poland to try and uh, defeat the Prussians on the one hand. Uh, secondly, he knew the Russians um, were coming um, to help the Prussians. So he wanted to defeat those and be, placing himself in Poland would potentially give him um, and sort of East Prussia, give him a good uh, chance of doing this. And this is already tied up with the idea of trying to economically cripple Britain. Um, he wanted to sort of get up towards the Baltic and to try and stop trade from that part of the world. And obviously when he goes into Eastern Prussia, um, he also goes to Berlin and um, basically starts the official continental system, which many people know about, where he was trying to economically crush Britain through um, a series of uh, Berlin decrees to try and stop countries trading with Britain. And if he could go into uh, Eastern Prussia and Poland, um, that would be a major um, help with trying to get countries to come on board with the continental system. Um, but obviously there's the debate about how much Napoleon himself was really bothered about Polish independence itself. I mean, probably he wasn't that bothered, but he just knew it was a means to an end for himself. Um, it would help sort of weaken other states, um, his other major rival states. Um, he managed to create a right, um, you know, an allied 
state that could be on his side, which would be good. And ultimately, he could rely on the Polish to uh, provide more troops uh, for his armies. And Napoleon famously said, if I see 30 to 40,000 soldiers, I shall proclaim your independence. So he was trying to, um, you know, increase Polish uh, ideas of independence, but mainly for his own ends. Um, and also, interestingly and famously, uh, one of Napoleon's mistresses was uh, Polish, um, Marie Countess, uh, Countess Marie Kolona von Kenska. Um, and he was met, she was meant to be the favourite of his 22 mistresses. And um, there's famous letters of him writing to her saying that Poland will get independence um, if she becomes his lover. Um, and so that's very much, I think, one of his motivations, uh, becomes one of his motivations as well as all the military uh, stuff is um, this crossover with his interest. I mean, one of his mistresses, um, she goes on to be his favourite mistress, visits him in Elba in 1814, and even after his final abdication in 1815, she goes and visits him. So and there's definitely a sort of strong bond between the two of them, and this sort of all gets caught up in the Polish question um, about independence. Um, I can also say a bit about the campaign itself. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a bit on this in my PhD because the British sent various officers to um, ob- observe the campaign in uh, Prussia and Austria and um, Poland. Um, obviously, the campaign's famous in terms of the battles of Elau and Friedland, um, but there's various important lessons learnt from the campaign. Firstly, the core system that Napoleon had been so keen to develop, uh, tended to work quite well in this campaign, managing to use various separate formations to pin down uh, the enemy before other corps could come up and assist the, the, the corps that was in question engaged with the enemy. Um, but there was a number of issues with operating in Poland. Um, firstly, very poor weather, especially during the winter, uh, really made his campaign difficult. Uh, poor roads as well made it really difficult and the poor state of the landscape make it, made it difficult for him to feed his army. So all of these really caused Napoleon major issues. Um, famously also said after this campaign that you could add a fifth element to air, water, fire and earth, the fifth one being mud because of the campaign slowed his armies down so much in the muddy terrain over the winter um, in Poland. Um, but ultimately, the campaign was important because it defeated Russia to the extent that it uh, signed the treaties of Tilsit in 1807, um, which for Napoleon ended the War of the Third Coalition and brought Russia in line for the continental system. And for Poland's side of things, um, Napoleon granted them being the Duchy of Warsaw. Um, but this raised questions about how much he was serious about Polish cause because he didn't actually have Poland in the name of the new country or state that he created um, but he tried to sort of reconcile this by calling them the Polish army um, but there was an underlying suspicion that he was mainly just trying to create his own sort of state that could be a sort of puppet of France effectively. Um, so for Poland yes there was a sort of liberation but there was a bit of scepticism as to what Napoleon's motivations were really. Do you know, I didn't really know much about this, um, apart from obviously the romanticised style, you know, of Adam Mickiewicz and, and, and the poets of the time and, you know, Chopin and they're all, it is the height of, of, of these guys functioning. 
And it's really interesting to know a bit more about the military side mm-hmm. of literally Poland completely disappearing off the, off the map, off the face of the earth, and then being offered um, freedom on a plate. And of, I mean, who else wouldn't go, yes, let's mm-hmm. do it, let's go for it. So, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty outstanding. Um, I would have done, I would have done for it myself, but, but, um, I do want to know how the poll, uh, so the polls basically fought for Napoleon, but how were they organized and integrated into his army? Yeah. Um, so there was various different phases, um, of the Polish fighting for the French. Um, firstly, sort of early on before Napoleon was completely in charge of France. And there'd been the Polish legions, which had been organised, um, or also known as the Dubrovsky Legion, legions, because Dubrovsky was one of their main leaders. And they'd been operating since 1797, really up until 1803. It was about 25,000 Polish um, fighting in those legions. And they basically um, were integrated into the French army and operated um, in Europe and around the world, really. Um, and then when... Napoleon marched into East Prussia and Poland in 1806. Um, there was the actual Duchy of Warsaw, Polish um, army was actually instigated. And Poniatowski, who's one of the really famous Polish commanders, uh, became commander-in-chief of the army um, in 1806-7. Um, he was actually the nephew of Stanislav II, who was the leader um, that had been under the influence of Catherine the Great that I mentioned earlier and um, he was very much one of the leading commanders of the day became um, a marshal of France actually which is very unusual and um, bearing in mind that he wasn't French um, and so with the, the army raised in 1806-7 there was sort of three major departments of Poland that were raising military formations these were basically division sized formations across Poland um, and they gradually increased in number and um, within two months there was already 24,000 troops raised and then this would gradually keep increasing, um, 75,000 by 1812, but there's actually many more, um, cause the legions that had originally been formed were still operating as well as the standing army of the Duchy of Warsaw, um, and various Polish people were fighting in the, uh, French regiments themselves, actually. So there's, uh, probably double that amount actually fighting for the French. And um, there's various different regiments, but I think worth highlighting one of the most uh, famous elements of the Prussian of the Polish army was the lancers, and um, this had been a very traditional um, part of their military sort of light cavalry that could um, perform various tasks, um, all mounted. And this meant that sometimes up to half Pol- of the Polish army was actually cavalry formations, which is very different to the rest of Europe. Um, and these these were famously armed with lancers, um, so like long pikes. Um, and the most famous regiment was probably the Guard Lancers, um, which Napoleon uh, took into his famous Imperial Guard. Um, initially, they weren't armed with lances, but they they were Polish uh, nobility and their followers who paid for their own horses and equipment. Um, and Napoleon was so impressed with them and thought it was a good way, again, of uh, recompensing the Polish that he formed a Guard Lancer regiment um, who were armed with lances from 1809 onwards. Um, and the rest of the Polish army was armed with Prussian muskets and guns uh, taken from Napoleon's campaigns into Prussia. And then basically they would form uh, various uh, corps within Napoleon's army, famously uh, the 5th Corps in the 
1812 invasion of Russia, and then the Eighth Corps in the 1813-14 campaign. So quite big formations that the Polish were providing Napoleon with um, during the campaigns, and they were a major part of his army as the Napoleonic Wars went on, and he uh, relied on them to be trusted soldiers uh, within his army. Um, did they look the same as the French? Were they in the same uniform? Um, so from a sort of distance, they would look pretty similar um, mm-hmm. because they were sort of uniformed in blue, most of them, um, and sort of white trousers. So from a distance, they looked the same. But very distinctively, they had um, a four-pointed hat, um, the Kazpa. I'm not quite not sure how you pronounce it. Um, but this was basically a traditional Polish um, hat that the infantry and the cavalry and lancers wore. Um, and interestingly enough, actually, uh, not just in Poland, but various European countries started to, um, when they started arming their cavalry with lancers, um, the same as had come from Poland, having seen how effective the Polish lancers were, they actually uh, adopted their style of headdress as well. So um, you see sort of Prussian or Brunswick formations wearing the same headdress and carrying lances. I mean, even the British army after the Napoleonic Wars uh, decides that the lance is such an important cavalry weapon that it not only arms its cav- some of its cavalry regiments with lances, but also wears the same distinctive Polish headdress, um, which some parts of the British army today even wear in their ceremonial uniform, um, all coming from the Polish tradition of having lances. So it's quite um, influential across Europe, not just in Poland itself, but the, the Polish lances are really sort of culturally a major military thing that come out of the Napoleonic Wars. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. What Napoleonic campaigns did the Poles fight in? Yeah, so um, quite a big question there because there's um, lots of campaigns during this period and many of which the Polish are involved in. Um, initially, the Polish legions, or the Dubrovsky legions, as I was mentioning earlier, um, in the early parts, um, they fight with the French in Italy and Germany, um, but to a sort of varying degree of um, competency, I think. But they sort of, unfortunately, get lumped in with a lot of the other German states um, and their troops. And Napoleon famously um, sort of sends them off to the Caribbean um, to basically put down rebellions in the Caribbean and thousands of the Polish troops are sort of lost to disease mainly in the Caribbean. So that sort of wipes out a lot of the Polish legions that originally been fighting for the French. Um, but after the creation of the Duchy of Warsaw, um, the army is obviously 
QTD expanded and that it's an actual sort of standing army and that can uh, keep relying on more and more conscripts to fight for it. And so gets involved in a number of campaigns. Um, firstly, the 1806-7 campaign that we are talking about earlier um, in East Prussia and Poland. Uh, the Polish are involved in that, um, obviously in sort of more limited numbers than later on because they're just getting going, but um, they're certainly involved in that. Then there's a few famous um, encounters that could probably highlight. Um, firstly, um, there's the division of the Duchy of Warsaw was sent to Spain in 1808, um, but also the Guard Lancers go to Spain in 1808 um, with Bonaparte. And um, on the there's a famous encounter on the road from Burgos to Madrid in um, November 1809, where Napoleon um, asked for, for the road to be cleared because um, they face a whole battery um, or batteries of Spanish guns that are blocking the road. Um, and the cavalry basically, um, I'm not sure what to do, but the Polish lancers um, are sent forward and basically clear the road and um, are taking quite heavy casualties. Um, but Napoleon's very impressed with the conduct of the Polish lancers um, during that action. And um, there's a famous account where he actually goes forward soon after the battle and finds a lieutenant of the Polish lancers lying wounded and famously pins the Legion of Honour, you know, the most famous um, merit of honour that the French could award at that time, onto his lapel to sort of thank him for his um, bravery that day. And then uh, the following day, he actually awards 16 more Legions of Honour um, to the Polish lancers for their action um, in Spain in 1808 then. Um, and then sort of um, moving on, they also fight against the British in 1811. Um, but then further on, in, again, in Russia in 1812, uh, they actually form a whole corps for Napoleon's army, plus um, helping out various other formations. Um, and this is, again, the Polish are very sort of keen on the Russia 1812 campaign because they're moving across their own territory and there's this, again, the revival of the idea of a independent Poland and um, so they're quite enthusiastic for the campaign and they actually provide all in all a hundred thousand Polish troops uh, for Napoleon's Grand Army and which is actually the second largest um, national contingent after the French um, in the entire uh, force and actually the largest per population so the highest amount of a population of one country uh, the Polish are actually the, the highest rather than the French uh, sending the amount of troops in um, and they, Poniatowski, uh, this famous, famous marshal, leads the fifth corps, um, who's, his fifth corps start out with 36,000, uh, troops. The rest of the Polish is spread across, uh, the rest of the French army. Um, and obviously it's an absolutely disastrous campaign for Napoleon and his army. And by the end, um, they can only count 400 Poles out of 36,000, um, on their sort of parade strength as they come back. Um, after that disastrous campaign into Russia. Um, but famously, they claim to have still had all their guns or artillery pieces. Um, so they saw that as a measure of the order that the Polish troops had kept, um, kept all their guns. Um, famously, they fought at Smolensk, um, and 88 legions of honour were awarded to uh, the Poles there, which is a huge number uh, for one action. Um, but unfortunately, Dubrovsky, um, who was in command of a separate division, um, he was guarding a bridge over the Beresina, which is a famous river the French had to cross uh, to get back towards France and back into Germany towards France. And unfortunately, his uh, Dubrovsky's division lost this bridge 
which then led to this famous um, scene, which many people probably know about, where they had to build a pontoon bridge um, across across the Berrettina, um, and various French were drowned. Uh, but it did mean that many of the of Napoleon's army could actually escape um, back uh, towards France. But unfortunately, the Polish had lost the key one of the key bridges. Um, but other than that, they'd performed heroically, and they would go on to again. Um, in Napoleon's campaign in 1813, um, and at Leipzig, uh, they'd suffered sort of 10,000 casualties. Um, Poniatowski himself, this is where he's made a marshal after the Battle of Leipzig. Um, unfortunately, he's only a marshal of France for three days, though, um, from the 15th to the 19th of October, 1813. Um, having been wounded five times, he then unfortunately ends up drowning um, in a river crossing. Um, so he's sort of a very short-lived marshal, but um, it's a rather inglorious end to what had been a very um, famous rise to power, and he'd been very much an advocate of Polish independence all the way through, so unfortunately he never saw his sort of dream really come uh, true. Um, and then in 1814, um, Napoleon obviously famously abdicated, and um, 6,000 Poles uh, volunteered to come with him to uh, the island of Elba for his exile. Um, but they could only take just over a hundred, and um, that shows the sort of level of dedication the Poles had to serving um, France and Napoleon, and this idea that they may get independence um, out of their service, but also just their honourable service, I think, to whichever country they are fighting for. In this in this case, France, that they were actually dedicated to fighting for the country they agreed to fight for, um, which I think was a, an important part, and then. A few Poles fought at Waterloo right at the end, I mean, Napoleon's Imperial Guard, um, and that sort of marked the end of the Napoleonic Wars, obviously. So, yeah, quite a diverse and distinguished service history, I think, um, across the Napoleonic Wars. Definitely. Um, what about the British? What's their experience of fighting against the Poles? Yeah, um, it's an interesting question, because they have limited experience initially, and there's some early encounters um, at Maida in Italy in 1806. Then they're present as well at Talavera, one of Wellington's famous actions. There's a regiment of Poles um, at the Battle of Talavera. Um, But most famously is definitely the Battle of Albuera on the 16th of May, 1811 in Spain. Um, And this was a very famous um, action for the Polish Lancers um, because, uh, I don't know... In terms of the battle itself, there's a crisis in the battle and famously Colborne's brigade, a British brigade of four regiments, four battalions, um, marches forward to try and um, shore up the Spanish line that's fighting against the French. Um, And just as they're coming up into position, unfortunately, there's a huge rainstorm and so visibility is very difficult and they can't see what's happening. And there's still forming line. Um, and firing into the French when suddenly uh, from their right flank the French and especially the Polish Lancers come charging into the British um, of Colborne's brigade um, and absolutely sort of massacre them because they're caught in line rather than square which is the traditional formation um, to receive cavalry um, so basically there's nothing they can really do and the Polish Lancers basically um, cause really bad casualties on the British and um, one of the units, the Buffs, uh, lose 85% of their troops, uh, mainly to the Polish Lancers. Um, and even Beresford, who's the British commander of the entire army, um, is actually attacked by a Polish Lancer. Um, and he famously 
drags this Polish lancer out of his saddle and um, onto the floor, but it shows how um, difficult the situation was. The actual commander was caught up with the Polish lancers. Um, but so effective was this uh, that Napoleon immediately ordered various French regiments to be converted to carrying lances because of the Polish lancers at Albuera. Um, and the British, um, you know, in, in the mythology of the war, um, the British knew the lance and the Polish, especially using them, were formidable fighters and the British would themselves convert various regiments to being lancers after the Napoleonic Wars. So that was a sort of real important encounter um, with the Polish, um, was at Albuera. And then I think the other notable one is, is really Waterloo. Um, people that have seen the Waterloo film will see that the Polish lancers uh, feature quite prominently, um, a bit like in Sharp as are they also feature fairly prominently. Um, but in both cases, it's quite sort of exaggerated because um, they weren't like in anything like the numbers that they're often shown and the British didn't encounter them that often. Um, and it, for example, in the Waterloo film, uh, Ponsonby famously gets lanced by about seven Polish lancers that chase him down. There's a famous scene in the film. Um, and unfortunately, it's a sort of a myth that's sort of grown up because even though he may have been killed by lancers, um, probably not chasing him, but when he was actually a prisoner and they were French lancers rather than Polish lancers, and the Polish lancers weren't even involved in any part of that. Um, part of the Battle of Waterloo. So um, there's quite a lot of mythology about the Polish lancers that's um, grown up, um, that's sort of often repeated in different things. Um, but they did fight at Waterloo, um, and they charged various British squares later on um, in the battle. Um, so the British, especially the, the First Foot Guards and the Brunswick troops as well, um, came across the Polish lancers at Waterloo, um, and there's various accounts of them uh, fighting them at Waterloo. But yeah, I think overall the British experience is very much um, respecting the Polish and seeing them as formidable enemies. Um, often there's various accounts of how brutal the Polish, um, especially Polish lancers, could be um, and oft- often didn't um, give any quarter to prisoners captured or wounded soldiers on the battlefield, um, especially out where there's a few accounts of that. Um, but they definitely respected the Poles as uh, formidable fighters, I think, was the, the British experience overall. Were the Poles actually that brutal, in your um, opinion? I think it's it's a matter of debate, really. To, you read different accounts that um, there's definitely views that they were and that they treated the wounded or that they, um, you know, not very well or didn't take prisoners. Um, but there's also, you know, various accounts where I think that's been, that's been exaggerated and there's certainly... Um, especially things written, memoirs, etc. after um, the events. I think a lot of things get caught, caught up in the mythology of all these events um, and it's difficult to know ha- how true exactly that, that would be. Um, and also things like Albuera taking prisoners in that sort of situation uh, during the battle, which I'm sure many people know about the Battle of Albuera. Um, you know, it was a difficult situation really to secure prisoners and take them back. Um, and once they had the opportunity of sort of rolling up the British line, um, you know, I think most cavalry formations were sort of trained to, to sort of not give quarter and try and, um, secure the victory uh, rather than doing that. So I think some of the criticism is probably a little bit unwarranted, but they certainly were vicious fighters. Um, so yeah, I think. It's a bit of a bit of both, really. Sometimes it's exaggerated, and sometimes um, they certainly were 
uh, fairly brutal. I kind of like that, though, as a myth. You know, you create this sort of myth that these guys don't take prisoners and, mm. you know, they're ruthless. Then obviously everybody's going to be afraid of them. It's a bit like yeah. um, going back a couple of hundred years and talking about the Polish Hussars. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's kind of a continuing continuation of a myth that just goes on. That, sorry, the Poles are brutal. So therefore mm. everyone's just going to be scared at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah, no, I definitely think that's true. Um and yeah, there's worse things to be, you know, you're meant to be a military formation. Um if you're known uh, you know, don't mess with the poles, then I think that's quite a good reputation to have really if you're a military formation. Are you listening, everyone? Don't mess with the poles. No, I'm joking, <laughs> sorry. So <laughs> why were the Napoleonic Wars so important for Poland? Um, yeah, I think they're really a sort of defining moment in terms of is this really this struggle um, for independence? And there's a cu- clear sort of um, idea of identity and coming together of the Poles to try and um, secure this independence by any means necessary, really. And they basically hedge their bets with the French and quite, quite logically, um, you know, Prussia, Russia and Austria have in, in the past not really proved very uh, amenable to their plight for independence. Um, So the French um, offer them a sort of way out, but unfortunately um, that doesn't pay off for the Poles and the Congress of Vienna in 1814-15 basically creates a Russian Russian satellite state where even though they're, you know, a a sort of independent kingdom again, they're completely under the influence of Russia and it's not until the end of the First World War that they really managed to get that independence um, again that they'd had uh, well before the Napoleonic Wars. So I think their experience overall, um, you know, they sort of distinguished themselves time and again throughout the Napoleonic Wars, fighting for Napoleon, um, and they were seen as formidable troops. But their ultimate goal of um, Polish independence, unfortunately, wasn't really um, achieved, which is sort of really the tragedy in the whole story, I guess, that um, despite... Um, all the sort of sacrifices that they made um, throughout the long period, and they didn't really get what they were all fighting for in the end, which is um, difficult. But as of military formations themselves, they were very much respected out of the Napoleonic Wars. Um, you know, Napoleon himself, uh, with his guard lances, respected them, and all the major European powers um, clearly sort of emulated uh, the Polish in terms of the lances, but also respect to them as a fighting nation um, but unfortunately on the p- political level they weren't granted what they were all actually fighting for so I think that was the, the experience was you know a brave brave fighting throughout the wars but unfortunately they didn't get exactly what they wanted um, for all that bravery. I'm going to add a really awkward question but if you don't know the answer that's fine because mm-hmm. I can answer it for you. Yeah. Um, when sorry let me rephrase that question do you know where the Polish national anthem comes from? Oh, I'm not sure, though I know there's something to do with Dubrovsky, I think. Um, it is, it is, you're right. Um, so I just, because I thought this linked in quite nicely with what you were saying, because yeah. while you were speaking through the whole the whole conversation, I'm thinking, oh my God, some of this stuff is clicking. I'm like, oh my God, the national anthem, <laughs> the Polish national anthem comes from this. Mm. So um, just a quick thing, uh, Josef Wybicki uh, in 1797 actually wrote it as a poem, mm-hmm. and it was supposed to build, like, build up uh, and boost the morale of the troops because obviously as you were saying you know it didn't always go quite well for the poles 
Mm. And um, it's basically, it's Jeszcze Polska nie zginęła, so Poland is not yet lost. Mm -hmm. And um, the chorus actually says, I'm going to do the English version, not the Polish version, <laughs> um, because nobody's going to understand when I start speaking Polish, unless they're Polish people listening. So it basically goes along the lines of, March, March, Dombrowski, from Italy to Poland, under your command, we shall rejoin the nation. <laughs> and I absolutely love it, because it is it completely links your whole uh, your whole talk together yeah um basically and it was adopted in 1919 so not until poland was reunified again mm -hmm. um gosh my mathematics are terrible so more than more than 100 years later really yeah yeah exactly yeah and it, it, yeah definitely fits well because dubrovsky had been fighting in italy and was very distinguished from there and um, before he was sent to poland to try and help with the you know the uprising so it's obviously all linked um, with that story which is fascinating Thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about um, Poland and the Napoleonic Wars. I think it's a really good gap to fill because we have lots of listeners who are uh, very pro-sharp, pro-rifles and uh, love mm -hmm. the British side of things. So it's it's brilliant to hear um, not only the other side, but n not even necessarily the French as well, uh, to mm. learn about some of the other nations on the battlefield. So thanks very much. Yeah, no, no, it's been really good. Thanks for having me on. Um yeah, always listening into the podcast and it's always good. So yeah, great to actually be able to contribute once. Brilliant. Thanks so much. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower and I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.